Hi, this is Dr. Cameron Thompson. Welcome to the Marchese di Carabas podcast. Welcome to the first official episode of the Marchese di Carabas podcast. Just prior to this, there was a pre-first episode, which provided a brief biographical introduction to myself to share something of my story so we can get to know one another. The aim of this podcast is to be an inspiration and resource for those striving to create a culture of human flourishing. We'll do this by mapping out the real world of culture and meaning, drawing out the enchantment and meaning of cultural artifacts, both ancient and modern, drawing from history, literature, movies, psychology, theology, arts, and culture, all manner of things, and drawing out their interconnectedness so that we can better understand the world around us and enter in to the stories that we're naturally a part of in everyday life. And so in this first official episode, we're going to be looking at why I chose the name Marchese di Carabas for the name of this podcast. Why the Marchese di Carabas? Who is this mysterious figure? And we will do this through telling the story where that name comes from, which you may be familiar with a version of it under the title of Puss in Boots or The Master Cat. The story commonly known in English as Puss in Boots a weaving together of Straparola and Perrault's versions with some corrections of each, by Dr. C. Michael Thompson. There was a woman from Bohemia who had three sons. She was the widow of a miller, and their only possessions in the world were the mill where they also lived, a mule, and a cat. When in time the widow also died, the inheritance was split up in this way. The mill went to the eldest son, the mule went to the second son, and the youngest, named Constantino, received nothing but the cat. The poor Constantino was quite dejected at having received so little. My brothers, said he, may make a handsome living by joining their shares together, for the mule was used to turn the grindstone at the mill. But for my part, what shall I do with a cat, I, who can barely feed myself, and now have an animal to feed? The cat, having heard all this, said to him with a grave and serious air, Do not be so downcast, my good master. I will provide for your well-being and for my own. If you just give me a sack and a pair of boots, you will see that I am the most valuable thing you ever could have inherited. And so Constantino, figuring he had nothing to lose, provided the cat for what he'd asked for. Having received these things, the cat gallantly pulled on the boots and slung the sack over his shoulder. Holding its drawstrings in his forepaws, he went to a place where there was a great abundance of rabbits. He put some grain mixed with fresh greens into his sack, and laying it out on the ground, he stretched himself out as though dead, and just so he waited for some young rabbits to come and look into his bag. Before much time had passed, a rash and foolish young rabbit jumped right into the bag, and the masterful cat immediately pulled the strings tight and caught up the young rabbit. Pleased with his prey, the cat went with it up to the king's palace and asked to speak with his majesty. He was shown up into the king's chambers, and making a low bow, the cat said to him, Sire, I have brought you a rabbit from my noble lord, the Marquesa de Carabas, for that was the title that the cat gave to his master, who begs your gracious acceptance of this humble gift. 
Tell your master, said the king, that I thank him, and that I am very pleased to accept this gift. Then the king added, Tell me, who is this Marquesa de Carabas? For the king wondered that he had never heard of him before. The cat replied that he was a young man for whom virtue and good looks had no superior, and the king, upon hearing this report, ordered the best food and drink to be set before the cat. Having ate and drank his fill, the cat then filled the sack that he had brought with good things from the king's table and carried it back to his master, who ate and drank the banquet the cat brought for him from the king's table. Now Constantino, though he really was an attractive and strong young man, had suffered so much privation and distress that his face was rough and covered with blotches, causing him much discomfort. So the cat, having taken him next morning down to the river, washed Constantino and licked him, being a cat, carefully with his tongue from head to foot, and tended him so well that in three days he was healed and quite free from his ailments. The cat continued over the next three months from time to time to carry presents to the royal palace to present them to the king on behalf of his master, the Marquesa de Carabas, as previously described, and in this way got sustenance and a basic living for Constantino. After a time, the cat discerned that the courtiers might soon become impatient with this pattern, and so he said to Constantino, My master, if you only do what I shall tell you, in a short time you will find yourself a rich man. And how will you manage this? said Constantino. The cat answered, Come and see, and do not trouble yourself about anything, for I have a plan for making a rich man of you that cannot fail. Whereupon the cat led Constantino to a spot on the bank of the river which was near to the king's palace. And when they arrived, the cat bade his master to strip off all his clothes and throw himself into the river. Meanwhile, the cat took his master's old rags and stuffed them away into the hollow of an old tree. Then he began to cry out in a loud voice, Help! 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 Run! For Messer Constantino is drowning! It happened that while Constantino was in the midst of the deep water, the king was just then passing by in his carriage and heard what the cat was crying out, and having in mind what great benefits he had received from Constantino, he immediately sent some of his household to the rescue. You must know, your majesty, the cat said to the king, that some robbers, who had learned by the agency of a spy that my master was bringing a great store of jewels to offer them to you as a present, laid in wait for him and robbed him of his treasure, and moreover threw him into the river to make an end of him. But your royal assistance has caused him to escape from death. When Constantino had been dragged out of the water and dried off, the king gave him a hearty welcome and commanded the officers of his royal wardrobe to fetch the finest of his own garments for the Lord Marchese di Carabas. And once dressed in these rich garments and a royal robe, the king asked him to join himself and the princess in their carriage, for they were going on a ride about the countryside to the very edge of the kingdom. Since such fine clothes gave him a very striking appearance, enhancing his naturally attractive figure, the king's daughter, having seen all these things since the time of his rescue from the waters, took a secret inclination to him and couldn't take her eyes off him once he entered into the royal carriage to join them. Now it happened that in that country a nearby castle had belonged on a time to one Signor Ioannis Valentino, a valiant knight who had been waylaid in a distant land and befell an accident and died. While he was gone, an ogre had taken over his castle and now ruled the lands round about. Not only was this ogre a terror to the people of that region on account of his very nature, he was also a powerful sorcerer. 
The cat, having seen his master into the royal carriage, mounted a horse and rode on ahead of them, overjoyed at how his plan was succeeding. Coming upon some peasants who were gathering grain from the fields, the cat addressed them and warned them, saying, Woe to you, for the king is coming, and if you do not, on pain of death, declare to him boldly that these lands belong to the Marquesa de Carabas, you shall fall into the hands of the ogre and be chopped into tiny bits. Then the cat left them, and continuing still further on, he came upon some herdsmen tending their animals, and told them the same. Woe to you, for the king is coming, and if you do not, on pain of death, declare to him boldly that all these herds are at the service of the Marquesa de Carabas, you shall fall into the hands of the ogre and be chopped into tiny bits. And so the cat did, admonishing any whom he should come across, to do the same, or suffer that fate. As the king's carriage came by and passed these peasants, the king's men asked whom these vast fields belonged to. And the peasants, fearful of the cat's warnings, declared, These lands belong to the Marquesa de Carabas. The king turned to the Marquesa, saying, So, my friend, it seems we are entering into your dominions, and congratulated him on the fine harvest. And likewise, some ways further on, the king's carriage came to the herdsmen, and the king inquired of them who these herds and flocks belonged to. The herdsmen, keeping in mind the warning of the cat, declared boldly, these herds belong to the lord Marquesa de Carabas, and the king marveled at the Marquesa's vast estates. Meanwhile, the cat had come to a castle which ruled over all these lands, and approached the castle guard, who were in somewhat shabby state for want of supervision in carrying out their duties, for nobody dared approach the castle of an ogre, and so the garrison was unused to having to guard the gates, saying to them, Woe to you, for the king is coming! And if you do not on pain of death declare to him boldly that you serve the Marquesa de Carabas, you shall fall into the hands of the ogre and be chopped into tiny bits. Hurry then, and clean yourselves up and stand watchful, for even now you can see the cloud arising on the road, signaling the approach of the king's horses. Now the cat, who, being familiar with all manner of lands and places, had previously taken care to learn about this ogre and what he could do, so having passed beyond the castle gates, he went in to speak with the mighty ogre, saying to the doorman that he could not pass so near to this castle without having the honor of paying his due respects to one of such renown. The ogre, intrigued by the cat's flattery, received him into his courtyard as civilly as an ogre can, and invited him to sit down. The cat declined to sit in the presence of such august power, and said to him, I have heard that you are able to change yourself into any kind of creature that you choose. You can, for example, transform yourself into a lion or an elephant and the like. That is true, answered the ogre very brusquely. And to demonstrate, I shall now become a lion. The cat was so terrified at the sight of a ferocious lion so near to him that he leaped onto the roof of the courtyard, but the tiles caused him great difficulty as his boots were of no use to him on the tiles in this place. However, when the ogre resumed his natural form, the cat came down, saying that he had been very frightened indeed. Surely, said the cat, that is most impressive, but a lion has so much in common with you, being so great in size and strong in form. Do you also have the power to transform yourself into a slender and gracious animal, for instance, a stag? At this the ogre replied, Ha! I am mighty in appearance, and I can take any form I choose, whether to frighten or to entice. Behold, 
and at that the ogre transformed into the most gracious and lithe stag you have ever seen, and leaped high above the walls before resuming his natural form. That is most beautiful, said the cat. Surely you could lure any hunting party to their doom in that guise. However, I have also heard that you could change yourself even into the smallest of animals, say a rat or a mouse, but certainly that would be impossible. Impossible, cried the ogre. Nothing is impossible for me, I will show you. At that, the ogre immediately transformed himself into a small mouse and began to run about the floor. Before he could escape into a crack in the wall, the cat pounced upon him and gobbled him up. Meanwhile, the royal carriage had arrived at the castle, and having been told by the guard, now arrayed in better state, that they served the Marquesa de Carabas, decided to pass across the drawbridge into the outer courtyard. The cat, having heard the rumor of their approach over the drawbridge, ran out to greet them, saying, Your Majesty is welcome to the castle of my lord, the Marquesa de Carabas. The king marveled at the place and cried, My lord Marquesa, there can be nothing finer than this palace and all the rooms within it. Indeed, it is arrayed even finer than my own. Let us go inside, if you don't mind. The Marchese gave his hand to the princess and followed the king, who entered first. They passed into a spacious hall, where they found a sumptuous feast all laid out, which the ogre had prepared for his friends, who had purposed to join him in that castle upon that very day. Upon hearing that the king, however, had entered therein, and that their master, the ogre, had been vanquished, they dared not approach to the castle, and so departed in haste to a different country. His majesty and the whole royal retinue were treated to a marvellous banquet, and the king was very impressed by the remarkable qualities of the Marquesa de Carabas, and the princess fell madly in love with him. Moreover, the king had made up his mind to give his daughter, whose name was Elisetta, to be the Marchese de Carabas's wife. The Marchese and the princess, the king's only daughter, were married that very day. Not long after, the king died, and the people chose by acclamation Constantino Fortunato, the illustrious Marchese de Carabas, for their king, as the inheritance of the whole kingdom passed to Elisetta as her father's only child. And by this means, Constantino rose from an estate of poverty and misery to become a powerful king and lived long with Elisette, his wife, ruling together over the land in peace and harmony, leaving their children to be heirs of a wondrous kingdom. So you have heard the story now of the Marchese de Carabas, his origins, where he came from, who he is. You're probably more familiar with the story's title in English, which is simply Puss in Boots, which is taken from Charles Perrault's version of the story. It is certainly not the only one, nor is it the first one, uh, who entitles it Master Cat, or Le Maître Chat. Uh, he is drawing from previous sources that tell the same basic fairy tale. And the, the idea here is the cat who helps the youth, uh, the impoverished youth, in our case, Constantino Fortunato, taking the name from the original written version that we have by, uh, by Straparola, which was an Italian story at first, although, to be truth be told, the, the story far predates by, by a long ways, a long period of time prior to our first written version of the story that we have available, us, available to us today. But in any case, I digress. The cat helps out the youth to through through many adventures of a certain sort to undergo a transformation we see the transformation of the main character constantino into 
becoming the Marchese di Carabas. How does this happen? There's a number of things that we could really delve into. It's very rich with symbolism in this story. Even unto the name Marchese di Carabas, why did the cat choose that particular title for his master? And what does the name Constantino mean? What does the name Constantino Fortunato mean? Uh, why is it significant, the places that they're from? Uh, these are all woven into the story very intentionally. And what I've done is taken what I consider to be the best the best parts of Perrault's version of the story, uh, which was the one that's translated into English, um, um, popularized in, in English, and what I consider to be uh, the, what I, I frankly, I prefer Straparola's version of the story, and taking and weaving these two together, providing some minor corrections and adjustments, as storytellers are wont to do, uh, to bring a cohesive whole to it, and draw out some of the perhaps more obscure significance or obscure symbolism that is contained in either or both of the versions of the story that I mentioned. So let's dive right in. Let's begin by looking at the overall theme of the story. What we see here is the basic transformation from a life of misery to royalty. And of course, there's a number of things that royalty signifies, but we see the, the uh, impoverished young man Constantino Fortunato, transformed from absolute poverty and misery to a higher state. And what's uh, significant initially about his, about his initial state is that it's not just that he's poor. Remember, he has lost his father that made him, his, you know, his, his mother was a widow, uh, the wife of a miller, right, the widow of a miller. And then his mother deceases and he becomes an orphan for all intents and purposes. And so he's lost his parents. He has inherited the cat of all things, the, the least important, the seemingly least important of the three things that could be inherited. Three, of course, being a symbolic number. Um, but there's the mill that's inherited by the elder son, the mule, which goes along with the mill, inherited by the second son, and a cat, which would be really useful to a, to the functioning of a mill, keeping away cats, and, or keeping away rats and mice, uh, but though not essential to the functioning thereof, is inherited by the youngest, Constantino, who seems to have been uh, ejected in some way from continuing to live at the mill by his two older brothers. But the state is not just that he's impoverished, but miserable. And the miserable life is a step below the uh, life of poverty. The miserableness, true true misery, uh, as, as we would understand it within the context of this, the, the language that the story is using, is, is also an internal state, a, a, a sort of despair, a sense of hopelessness overall. Not necessarily lacking hope, but that your material conditions uh, lead you to a place where you are quite quite truly on the brink of death, uh, and if not material, not only material death, but uh, on the brink of death of the heart, on the death of in any sort of interior life. And he is transformed from this state through a journey, uh, both sort of a figurative journey, but then also sort of leading to an actual physical journey in the carriage ride to, um, to really become a state of, of, of royalty and entering into royalty. And royalty, of course, in these kinds of stories is uh, always significant of um, some sort of higher spiritual plane, a greater existence, human flourishing, and of course, uh, very explicitly, often a state of divinity or semi-divine status so participating in the sort of royal life of God and of heaven. So we see the transformation of this young man from 
a state and life of misery to life in the full as royalty. And he, of course, gets to marry the princess, right? The great theme of so many, uh, so many fairy tales, marries the princess. Another theme in the story that we see is that this baptismal immersion and emergence from the waters, both an immersion into the water and an emergence out from the waters and the shedding off of old ways and an old mindset symbolized by the rags and becoming robed in new ways. That is the royal garments is sort of the pivotal moment in the story where Constantino himself is overcome and transformed into the Marchese di Carabas. And in that, we see the transformation in the language of the story from referring to him when we're speaking directly about him as Constantino. He now fairly consistently is referred to as the Marchese di Carabas, and that is emphasized again and again. He is the Lord Marchese di Carabas. Uh, that name is no longer sort of just an empty name, a persona without a body, but he becomes the Marchese di Carabas. He's no longer merely Constantino. Now, the cat creates this persona for Constantino to step into, and then he leads him to enter into it and embody it. So there's that, that order in which things happen, that the cat creates the persona of the Marchese di Carabas. He creates a role and a reputation that quite literally precedes Constantino, and then leads Constantino himself to be fit to enter into it. So it's not only creating something for Constantino, but then he also goes through this transformative process with Constantino to allow Constantino to really enter into that role and embody it. And of course, we see the this, so there's that. That's the internal transformation of Constantino into the Marchese di Carabas. And then we also see the conquering and vanquishing of the ogre sorcerer, right? That is the deceiver. So there's, we still have to conquer an external enemy. And that is the overcoming of the ogre and sorcerer in a sort of judo-like way, you know, using his own strength against him, um, and thus allowing Constantino, as as now become the Marchese di Carabas, to inhabit the palace that is destined for him. So he's overcome, vanquished the ogre, the the terrible enemy. He's, he's conquered the monster, and he's able to enter into the castle. Now here we have sort of this dual role of vicariousness. There's a lot of like. A lot of things done vicariously in this story, and of course, uh, a lot of that is done by the cat on behalf of his master, the Marchese di Carabas. And in this way, the cat goes in ahead of the master and trans and overcomes the ogre, vanquishes the ogre. And so in that way, the Marchese di Carabas, whose, whose task right now is to be riding in the carriage, and because he's going on the journey itself. So we see these two worlds uh, in, in some sense, the world of inside the castle towards which uh, the Marchese and the king and the princess are riding in their carriage, which they will arrive at eventually, and then their, their life in the carriage. So they're in the carriage and the Marchese is going on the journey towards the castle, and simultaneously also the castle itself, which is being cleansed and purified, um, by Marchese vicariously through the person of the cat. So these are the main themes that we see in the story. And then let's go through bit by bit and look at what are some of the different, uh, what, some of the, what is some of the different symbolism in the story? What does it mean? What can it tell us about uh, our life in this world? And also, most importantly, the question, why the Marchese di Carabas? Why did I choose that name for the name of this podcast? Why I've chosen the name Marchese di Carabas for the name of this podcast and 
why I've chosen to examine the story of Puss in Boots, as it's commonly known in English as the first episode of this podcast, are both answered by the same. The story, as we know in English, uh, is called Puss in Boots, which is the popularization of the story uh, translated into English of uh, Charles Perrault's version of the story, which is called the Le Chat Botte, or Maître uh, Chat, that is the, the booted cat, or the cat in boots, or Master Cat, uh, as, as he titled it, is the one that's been primarily translated into English. But it's a, a story that, as I mentioned earlier, predates Perrault, he's drawing upon Straparola uh, and a few other writers uh, who themselves, these are the first, Straparola has the first written one that we have in any extent uh, version, but that's, the story predates them all by a very, very long time. But the story is not really about the cat, is it? That's a remarkable feature of the story, but really it's the story of the Marquesa de Carabas, the origin story of the Marquesa de Carabas, if you will. So what's in a name? The Marquesa de Carabas as a name is symbolic in itself. First, what is a Marquesa? A Marquesa, or a Marquis, if we want to you know, go with the French-English version of it, is a noble head of a kind of, is a kind of political entity in the Marches, uh, Le Marche, as we would say in Italian. But that is the borderlands at the edge of a kingdom or between two kingdoms. So a Marchese is the noble head of a political entity, a realm of sorts, uh, known as the Marches, or a borderland uh, between two kingdoms, or at the edge of a kingdom. My own ancestors, in fact, were from such places, by and large, and so there's a personal connection. But there's also a deeper meaning here. The elements of fantasy in the story show this to be no merely mortal, ordinary land, We've got a talking cat to begin with, and also inhabiting these lands is a, an inimical figure, this sorcerer ogre as well, and of course the other wonders that can happen within this kind of world in the story. But these marches, or these border, border lands of which Constantino becomes the Marquesa de Carabas, is not merely between two human kingdoms, but are the marches and the borderlands on the edge of Feria, that is, the marches between two worlds, the world of the imminent and the transcendent, and so contains elements of them both. The name Carabas itself has also been proposed by some scholars to be a cryptographic reworking of the word barakot, the Hebrew-Aramaic word for blessedness. Following along this line of reasoning, therefore, which, to my mind, seems the most plausible explanation of the origin of the name Carabas, following along this line of reasoning, the Marquesa de Carabas is a figure who inhabits, or rather, as the noble head, personifies, he is the personification embodied in himself of the realm between two worlds, not between fantasy and reality, but between the mundane and the sacred, between the imminent and tangible and the transcendent of the realm of meaning and spirit and love. As such, the Marquesa de Carabas is a man of mystery, not the kind of mystery like secrecy and the unknown dwelling in the shadows, but a kind of mystery associated with the divine, 
with enchantment, the mystery of life, love, beauty, and the sacred. The Marchese di Carabas represents the ideal type that we are called to become. That's the whole point of the transformation story, after all, to show the way to transformation for us. And as such, he is capable of guiding others through the complex and hidden, navigating the inner meaning and the, and the connections of things. There is a deeper assumption in the story itself, and in all such stories, that everything in this world, our world, is in fact present in both worlds, both the, the imminent and the transcendent worlds, the world of the ordinary and the world of the blessed. Everything in our world is in fact present in both worlds, or rather has both dimensions, both imminence and transcendence, both a tangible and mundane element and a deeper level of meaning and the sacred element to it. And so the marches of which the Marquesa di Carabas is the embodiment, is the, the marches are not a place elsewhere. The borderlands are not over there somewhere in geographical space, but rather are another level of seeing and being in the world all around us. Which is, of course, the goal and purpose of this podcast, to be a map maker of meaning in the world, to draw out the enchantment of beauty in human life and vanquish the ogres in our imaginations and our lives that block the way for us living in these two worlds, that is, living more fully human lives. Now let's look at some of the specific lessons and symbolism in the story, the origin story of the Marchese di Carabas and the transformation of poor Constantino into the Marchese di Carabas. First, we will talk about gift-giving. Gift-giving is the basic prerequisite for being a good king, as we see in the opening lines of Beowulf. That was a good king, right? He was a gift-giver. He shared abundantly with his thanes. It's an essential ideal for the noble, and thus for all of us. Even extolled today as, a fundamental, as, as, as being fundamental to good commerce in today's hypermarket society by the likes of Gary Vaynerchuk with the idea of jab, 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 right hook. We see that very advice being played out in this ancient fairy tale. Jab, 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 right hook, by the way, is the way Gary Vaynerchuk, uh, is, it's Gary V's shorthand for give, 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 and then make the ask. Give and then make the ask. Because giving establishes a relationship where you're not looking for anything in return. Sincere and authentic, genuine gift. I'm not trying to buy you ahead of time, not bribing you. I'm just straight up giving you something as a gift, as a present. And when I give, when you give something, something of the giver remains in the gift. And so it establishes a connection and a communion between the giver and the receiver. So when you give something to somebody, something of yourself remains in the gift. And likewise, uh, when someone gives something to you, something of the giver remains in the gift. And thus, now you are connected together at a deeper level. So giving establishes the relationship. And it is this gift giving that opens the doors to the king for Constantino under the persona of the Marchese di Carabas, a persona which he later becomes in fact. Interestingly, the gifts that are given by the Marchese di Carabas are precisely those that are possible to obtain and give no matter who you are. 
right? These are not gifts of gold and jewels, of lands and all manner of things like this. They're not the gift of military service. These are the gifts of rabbits, partridges and the like. Basic small game. Basic small game. But they're significant because they are personal. They are personal gifts from the Marquesa de Carabas. They are personal, and that is why they are graciously accepted and reciprocated by the king. The king isn't looking here for some selfish material advantage, because the gifts weren't set up in a commercial or transactional terms, but only as humble personal presents from the Marquesa de Carabas, as though the Marquesa de Carabas has sent forth his emissary, the cat in boots, to present these gifts to the king, to out of sheer honor, to honor the king. These are gifts for you. It's this relationship that's built that is the cause of the king reaching out to his friend, whom he's never met before this point, only received in, his, in the person of his representative, the cat, to rescue him and draw him up from the waters and clothe him in his own garments. You see this relationship, then it, in some ways, you might, you know, we might colloquial, colloquially say it, quote, pays off, but that's still thinking in too bourgeois terms, too commercialistic of an outlook. You've established a relationship. You give and you give. And now the king in his small way, though significant for you, presumably drowning in the river, can give back and draw you up from the waters and clothe you in, in his own garments. Because... Because there's a relationship that's there, a personal relationship, not merely a transactional relationship. This is why gift-giving is different than incentivizing in some way. Then we also see the role of transformation throughout the story. And there's not only the transformation of Constantino into the Marquesa de Carabas, but there's contrasted in an implicit way, not explicitly laid out for us, but we look at the story as a whole, a totally another approach to transformation, which is contrasted with that of Constantino. So there are two kinds of transformation that are being contrasted in this story, Constantino into the Marquesa de Carabas, and the ogre. So Constantino on the one hand, and the ogre on the other. The ogre is able to take on the guise of any creature, but always comes back to his own, quote, natural form, that of an ogre. He is a deceiver, his shape-shifting is deceptive, but it's not creative. The transformation of Constantino, on the other hand, is of a fundamentally different sort. He is not merely dressing up as a noble lord and deceiving the king. No, he is reduced to his own nothingness and robed by the king himself. But not only that... His transformation is creative, it's generative. There is truly a new thing created, which Constantino the Waif becomes. When he becomes it, it is no mere outward appearance, but what he becomes in truth. Constantino finally enters into what he already has been slowly becoming, in a sense. He becomes, finally, his true self. Now, his transformation is creative. The cat creates the idea, the ideal of the Marquesa de Carabas. Is he lying when he does this? Is the cat lying? Is the cat a deceiver? Isn't this also deception? Not at all. You see, if the story were just recounting some historical event, something that 
happened, like a deposition in a court case might be, then you could probably make that case. Indeed, some commentators have. However, when you realize that this is a fairy tale, and thus the things in it are not only referent to the internal content of the story, but rather the real world we live in as well, or even primarily the real world is the referent for the story, then we can see that the cat has only been excuse me, that the cat has only told the king certain facts about the boy that are true, right? He is a youth who for good looks and virtue has no superior. It's interesting, he doesn't make the bold sort of the 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 Blarney claim that that Constantino has no equal. He doesn't say that. He says he has no superior. You're not being so... You don't have the hubris to say he has no equal, as though he's above all others. You're just simply saying there are no others above him, right? You would never say that otherwise to a king, right? This would There's a certain implication in saying that he has no superior. Or excuse me, that he has no equal, meaning he's better than you, the king. To say that he has no superior could put him on par. There's a suggestivity there that puts him on par with the king. But in any case... He says these things that are true about the young man. And he's invented, as it were, the cat has invented, as it were, this title, the Marquesa de Carabas, for his master. And he's chosen to give that title to him. That doesn't, he doesn't, the cat doesn't falsely make up some noble lineage or lie about great wealth or military deeds. He isn't even lying about the gift that's being given on behalf of the Marquesa de Carabas. The gift is sincere and truly comes from his master, though his master may not even know the details of it, because it was his master who authorized the cat to carry out this task. You see, this cat, a sort of guardian angel or fairy godmother type, in fact, the cat is even specifically identified as a fairy cat, as a, as a fairy of sorts, a fairy cat in the Straparola version, this cat has created something. He has spoken it into being. He's giving Constantino a new name, one that Constantino truly becomes in the course of the story. And since a Marchese is the lord of the marches, you see, the borderlands between two kingdoms or two worlds, these often have allegiances across both boundaries. Even in the ordinary real world of history, uh, a Marchese or somebody who's the lord of sort of these marches, these border regions, often has some sort of um, you know, diverse and creative network of allegiances between the two different kingdoms and responsibilities to each. And see, so such a title could be given him by the sovereign of either side, of either kingdom, the, of a kingdom on either side of these boundaries. And so the cat, a fairy cat, is an emissary from that other world. He's a talking cat, after all, and such emissaries, in all manner of fairy stories, are often themselves not merely the ambassadors of another world, but they are themselves actually the kings or queens or great lords in the other realm. See, for instance, Tolkien's fantastic story, The Smith of Wood and Major, for a great example of the fairy king coming into this world as a sort of messenger. The cat, in many ways, is simply acting on his own legitimate authority to bestow such a title upon one whom he has chosen to become the Marchese and fulfill this role. So in this way, we see that it is not that Constantino is doing the fake-it-till-you-make-it kind of thing, but rather something entirely different. 
the cat has bestowed upon him the title which the cat then leads him to actually become. The man behind the mask, as it were. And here's the key part of that transformation. The cat had been for some time establishing the reputation of the Marchese di Carabas by means of these gifts, which also by reciprocity or reciprocation also got Constantino the cat, Constantino and the cat a basic means of living in the process. But the young man wasn't himself ready yet to enter personally into that role. For him, it was just a persona being prepared for him, but he also needed to be prepared for it. First, the cat purifies, that is, heals the youth by bathing him in the river and tending his ailments. It's a sort of mikvah slash purificative anointing. Right? He, as a cat, licks him to purify him and in some ways anoint him to rid him of his sickness and restore him, at least back to baseline. Then, restored to health and beauty, Constantino still has to be strengthened and pass through the portal of transformation, typically represented by fire or water or death or all three, depending on different kinds of stories. So he is given sustenance by the cat in the way of food from the king's table. Until, finally, the time is right and the cat strips him of his former ways of living in misery and squalor, his former mentality, his former mindset, his former way of being in the world, all of this symbolized by the rags, and disposes of these in the hollow of a tree, in allusion to the tree of life, perhaps? Then, possibly hanging of them on the cross, a crucifixion, a dying to the false self, a dying to an old one's old ways... And then he has Constantino pass through the deep waters, which ritually act as a sort of death and rebirth. Remembering the devices used in fairy tales, we are to understand that although in the context of the story, Constantino doesn't actually die and get reborn, like Halcyon in Ovid's Metamorphoses or in Gandalf in The Lord of the Rings, but we're supposed to see it happening at another level within the story, while maintaining consistency and believability of the plot, you see in that the cat tells the king that Constantino was beset by robbers and thrown into the river to drown, being given new life only by the gracious act of the king. So in the, cat, the reason the cat tells the king that is not for the king's sake so, uh, to move the plot along so much as it's for our sake to see at another level what is also going on, what is being symbolized by, by Constantino entering into the deep waters and then being drawn out the other side of the waters by the king. This is, by the way, an over-reference to the ancient narrative of the fall of man and woman in Eden, stripped of riches and grace by sin as though by robbers, or in fact, through their own robbery of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, which is a very traditional ancient way of referring to this, and how baptism restores us through a, through a vicarious death and rebirth in Christ, and we are robed by the heavenly king in the garments of divinity. So there's a very explicit reference to what would be common knowledge in a very Christian society when this story arises, uh, or at least is given its, its uh, sort of pre-modern form. Uh, these things would be common knowledge by people understanding the story, that that's woven into that. Now let's just take a brief look at the names of, of, of characters in the story and their relation to the moral of the tale. The name of the cat is not known, 
we only know his activities and that he as a cat is symbolic of a spiritual realm of something of there's something of mis having something of mystery and enchantment in his very nature being a cat he is in the beginning seemingly worthless to constantino for what good is a cat except for one more mouth to feed cats as i've said are very very useful in a mill in a mill where they keep where they keep out the rats and the mice from the grain but Separated from the mill, what is a cat to Constantino? However, the cat, of course, proves out his promise to be the most valuable thing Constantino could have ever inherited. In this way, he is symbolic, without being allegorical, to many things, such as faith, piety, ingenuity, graciousness, and the like, borne out in how we see the cat actually behaving with these particular characteristics, or even at a basic level, what we might refer to as sort of the type of thing that is a blessing in disguise. Constantino, the name, simply means constant or constancy, that is, faithfulness and integrity, loyalty and reliability. In a word, he is teachable and directable. He is open enough to become transformed under the cat's direction and guidance. He, there's a certain constancy to him. He's open to being transformed. Coming, it's, a, it's almost a shorthand way of talking about a certain kind of humility that is that is has um is, is malleable towards becoming something greater we aren't told constantino's second name until the end of the story in this particular version which is fortunato meaning fortunate or lucky or favored by chance now this name fortunato is ironically applied to him on two counts first if he has this name in the beginning it seems almost to mock him for he looks to be anything but fortunate, right? A poor orphan without means, except for a cat. Secondly, it is well known that fortune is fickle and can bring your ruin just as fast as she brought you wealth and fame, like social media, really. And cursing fortune's bitter ways and calling out fortune, the condemnation of relying on fortune, is a very common theme throughout late antiquity and the centuries known as the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. It's all through all manner of literature, both sort of philosophical discourses and many other stories. So we might be tempted to think of Constantino as fortunate, right? As merely favored by fortune. But is this the case? Does Constantino really just get lucky? No. This this story is not a story of that sort, the kind of story where someone stumbles upon a magic lamp or a golden harp or buried treasure. No, this is a story where Constantino is rescued from the fates of what fortune and chance had dealt him. It's a story of provident intervention into the ordinary running of chance and fate. He's rescued from fate and given a destiny to fulfill. He is guided by a provident hand, or paw, as the case may be, who acts with boldness and ingenuity, and most of all, gracious generosity and a willingness to die to self and undergo transformation in order to become himself and fulfill a destiny. Thus, to apply the name fortune to him is an ironic device intended to remind us to spurn fortune and chance and see that wisdom, humility, and creativity are far superior at turning our situations for the better.
We have a free will, and moreover, when we have ears to listen to it and eyes to see it, we also have divine assistance from one whose love governs the very sun and other stars. This basic element of the story is also made clear by the context that the story is set within by both Straparola and Perrault that are part of a larger collection of stories and and happenings that move the stories along from one one tale to another from which these stories are taken from which the story is taken uh, in in those settings sort of like a gem set in a particular piece of jewelry um so we know this not only from the content within the story and the way that uh, devices like this are used within fairy tales but also from the explicit context that straparola sets his version of the story in and also the context that charles perrault sets his version in in his explanation of, of the point of the story one of the part of the points of the story so Constantino now become the Marchese di Carabas, the lord of the borderland marches between the mundane and the blessed realm, between the mortal realm and fairy, attains the goal of his transformation journey, excuse me, attains the goal of his transformative journey, and, after defeating the ogre via his emissary, the cat, marries the princess. The princess's name, Elisetta, is the italic version of Elizabeth or Elisabeth, which means which is we see this name Elizabeth is of course taken from taken from uh, the gospel. The, Elizabeth is the kinswoman of Mary, right, who becomes the mother of John the Baptist. But Elizabeth is a Hebrew Aramaic name uh, Elisabeth, which mean, it meaning God fulfills His covenant or God covenants. Uh, the word sabbath, uh, sort of Sabbath, seven as being the, the sign of fulfillment or covenant. So God fulfills his covenant. There's a fulfillment of time here. There's a coming to fruition of that which has been covenanted uh, by God. That's what the name Elisabeth means. And so this is why it's significant that the princess, of course, is given that name. Uh, and so the Marchese di Carabas also becomes king, and Elisetta and Constantino. That is, God covenants and loyal faithfulness, just looking at their names, rule together over a wondrous kingdom, a marvelous kingdom. Lest we give in to what we're used to hearing in the parlance of our times, it has words stripped or gutted of their meaning and significance. Marvelous means filled with marvels, worth marveling at. There is awe and there is wonder. It is a wondrous kingdom, a marvelous kingdom. A wondrous kingdom is a kingdom of wonders, to put it that way. See, now that that brings re-enchantment, so re-enchant, brings a re-enchantment to the real original meaning of wondrous. It is a wondrous kingdom. It's not just very nice to look at. It's not just really sweet, but it's a wondrous kingdom. It's not just any ordinary kingdom. It's a kingdom of wonders. And when the Marchese di Carabas and Elisetta inherit the kingdom... They don't cease to be rulers of the marches of Carabas, but rather they bring with them, to the additional role as king and queen over the whole kingdom, the characteristics of Carabas, of the Marchese, of those marches of Carabas, that is, the interwoven nature of the two worlds containing within itself both the imminent and the transcendent, the mundane and the blessed, in a word, enchanted. And so the whole kingdom becomes enchanted, which is what we are all called to do. This is the story's main moral, if you will. 
That is, we are to become trans undergo the process of transformation, to become the Marchese di Carabas, to dwell in the marches of Carabas, that is, a kingdom wherein we can see and live and move and have our being in both dimensions of a life of a f full human life that is the imminent and the transcendent the mundane and the blessed in a word to live enchanted we are also told by perrault in his version of the uh, me, in his own explanation of the importance of the story in his version of two key things in transforming ourselves and our circumstances. One, ingenuity and virtue, and two, fine clothing. The first of these should be clear enough from what I've already said, but the second bears more explanation. It seems to be perhaps a superficial thing, but it actually is very significant in practical, practically living, in living out the practical implications of becoming transformed ourselves. We have a phrase in modern America, perhaps not used often in recent decades, but the suit doesn't make the man, right? Uh, the suit doesn't make a man, as we've heard. This is simply the Americanization of an older phrase, a much longer phrase, that uh, it goes way back many, many centuries, that the robes don't make a monk, right? In other words, dressing the part doesn't make it so, which is true which is true, right? Just because you dress the part doesn't make it so, right? The suit doesn't make a man. Just because you're wearing a suit doesn't make you a competent businessman, as, as the case may be, in sort of given the American sensibilities. Um, and the, the origins of the, the phrase actually are, like I said, the robes don't make a monk, or the habit, which is the monk's garments, don't make the monk, right? Just because you dress up like one doesn't make you one. Now, this is true, but it's only half of the saying, which is a very ancient saying. The other half is... But the robes form the monk, or the robes shape the monk. So, that is to say, though you may dress the part, doesn't make you what you're dressing as, or it doesn't actually make you what you pretend to be. However, the way that you dress, what you wear, actually, and actually shapes you. So what we wear, and by extension, the material things that we own and we have and we surround ourselves with, shape our identity and form who we are and who we become. You see, Constantino entered into the persona of the Marchese di Carabas, became the Marchese di Carabas in person, in reality, through means of his transformative immersion into the waters and coming out again, was the first half of that transformation, the dying to self and rising to new life, dying to the old identity, being born into a new identity out of the waters, but he doesn't really become shaped into the Marquesa de Carabas until he is dressed in the royal robes, till the king dresses him in his own garments. And this is an element that Perrault draws out in his explanation of the sort of the moral of the story, that dressing in the fine garments actually goes a long way towards shaping you to become what you are meant to become. So, this is very powerful realization, that there is a deep connection between being and having. And if we are to become what we should become, we will need to be attentive to that relationship. Thank you for listening to the Marchese di Carabas podcast. This is Dr. Cameron Thompson. 
you don't want to miss future episodes of the Marquesa de Carabas podcast, so please subscribe today on whatever device or whatever app or platform that you're listening to this podcast to, also available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and almost anywhere else that podcasts can be listened to. Subscribe today. I'd really appreciate it. Thanks. To find out more about the Marquesa de Carabas podcast and the associated blog, visit CameronMThompson.com. That is C-A-M-E-R-O-N-M, as in Michael, T-H-O-M-P-S-O-N.com. CameronMThompson.com. And there you'll be able to find out more information about the podcast and an explanation and also notes in the blog of a transcript of this podcast and places where you'll be able to find some of those other works that have been referenced in today's podcast. Thank you very much. And I'll talk to you in the next episode. Mm -hmm.